to You Got This, a podcast about teaching and learning and pivoting to digital for the whole TRU community. I'm your host, Brenna Clark-Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tkumloopstay-Sewetmik on the unceded traditional lands of Sewetmik Ulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And I've been kind of struggling with today's topic and how to bring it up, but we got a letter last week letting us know about a new service coming to TRU in the fall of 2021. That's soon. Uh, and that tool, service, product, is called Vital Source. And I have some questions. So let's get into it. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Vital Source is an automatic textbook billing program. Um, what that means is students play a flat rate every semester and they get electronic copies of their textbooks, um, usually on a rental basis. As long as they have access to the course, they would still have access to the course materials typically, although the models differ. Um, and as a result, students need to proactively opt out of the service if they don't want to take part. So in order to make that decision, students need to have a fair amount of information. They need to know which textbooks all of their instructors have selected, and they need to know how much those textbooks cost, and they need that information in advance of the course starting if they want to be able to make considered choices about whether or not to stick with the automatic textbook billing program. Um, You'll see that VitalSource uses the language equitable access for their program. This is uh, some language that they've changed. They used to call themselves inclusive access. Um, that language seems to have fallen out of favor. I call it negative option billing, <laughs> like the cable companies used to do in the 90s before they got told they couldn't do it anymore. Giving you something and then making you proactively opt out, I think is always a troubling choice from a consumer perspective. I don't know a lot about the vital source deal at TRU um, because it kind of seems to me that nobody does. I feel like the rollout or the launch so far has been kind of information poor. So I have a few questions that I want to raise today in my little monologue. <laughs> and I'm hoping that if you have answers to any of these questions, you might share them if you've been involved in any consultative process. Um, I haven't been. And to be frank, honest, vulnerable with you all, as I always am, I feel it's pretty likely that I'm going to be supporting this tool. <laughs> and I'd like to know a little bit more about how it works. I'm, I'm kooky like that. Um, Okay, so I've been doing a lot of reading about how these programs work, and I'm particularly interested in the equitable access, quote unquote, program and its implementation at University of California, Davis. At UC Davis, students were charged $200 a semester under this model, but that is about a one third increase over what we know students are actually paying for their textbooks year over year. 
that number is always really different from what the university declares as the cost of textbook materials. And I think that's important to remember, right? Students share books or they buy used um, or they photocopy the readings they need off reserve texts in the library. None of those are things they'll be able to do under the vital source program. And so I think that we need to be realistic about how students actually get their materials before we make any claims about cost savings. I'm also concerned because I've heard stories at other campuses that have used models like this where as large number of students opt out of the service, the cost goes up for the students who remain in the program. And so I'm worried about what the long-term costs look like for our students. I read some interesting research, which I'll link to in the show notes, that suggests that of all the campuses currently using similar textbook models in the U.S., only one has ever successfully negotiated a cap on price increases. So I'm wondering if we've been able to negotiate a cap on price increases and what students can expect going forward. I'm a little bit concerned about issues of academic freedom. Uh, Faculty I know at institutions that have taken on inclusive access programs like this have found a lot of pressure to pick textbooks already in the system. And they're threatened with the fact that if they don't, students might have to pay out of pocket extra for their course materials. So how does that change your relationship to the materials that you teach? Um, And how does that change students' relationships to your course materials and their likelihood of procuring them, even if they're very reasonably priced? I have a lot of questions about the reference made in the letter to um, integration with Moodle. As someone who is on a pretty close (laughs) first name basis with our Moodle installation, I'm not sure what that's going to look like. I also noticed in the letter that there was a reference to our ability to surveil students more effectively. We'll be able to see if they've accessed their textbooks. That seems... I don't know, do we have the right to do that? Like, what if they're, what if they do go and get their textbook from somewhere else and they're not using the version that's provided in the inclusive access model or equitable access model? Does that necessarily mean they're not engaging with their teaching materials? And is surveillance of student learning like that, is that an expectation that administration has of faculty? I think you all know (laughs) where I stand on the surveillance issue. But I think it's really important for us to talk about what expectations are inbuilt in a system like this. We have some data also to suggest that TRU students in particular prefer a print textbook. And as far as I know, most vital source agreements only allow students to print about 20% of any of their course materials. So where does that leave our students who prefer a print option? Or importantly, students who can't stream or download content because their internet access isn't great. We've certainly seen the impact of poor connectivity this semester for our students. And then I have a, a self-serving question. <laughs> Increasingly, we see these kinds of agreements with for-profit vendors involving non-disparagement language where faculty aren't allowed under the confines of the agreement to critique the tool. As someone who works in educational technologies and also has a big mouth on the internet, that concerns me. My ability to critique all the services we use, I think, is integral to my ability to do a good job and to serve you well as faculty. Hmm. So I'm wondering. I'm wondering. I think in general, I have more questions than answers about Vital Source, And that makes me nervous. 
I perhaps am suspicious by nature, but I've seen a lot of bad deals at a lot of institutions. And I worry about an announcement like the one we saw last week that declares that a service is coming without a lot of the contextual information we need to know if it's a good thing or a bad thing for our students. As someone who works in educational technologies, this is obviously something I think about a lot. There are a lot of these kinds of bad deals out there, and I feel like it's at least in part my job to notice and to ask questions. But it's easy to wonder if those questions are welcome. (laughs) I hope at a university they are. I hope we're all trying to be critical consumers of all the tools that we use. Anyway, thinking about vital source got me thinking about classroom materials in general and the choices that we make. And, And I get a lot of questions from faculty about the course materials they provide to students, particularly as we try to minimize additional costs for students. We want to provide more and more things. Um, But copyright law, like, where does that fit in? And so this week, I've invited Danny Collins. Danny is a copyright guru over in open learning at TRU, and she's also just about the sweetest person on campus. I'll let her tell you all about what you need to know about copyright. So today I am here with Danny Collins, and I've invited Danny to talk about copyright in particular. We field a lot of questions about copyright, and I have literally zero expertise. So um, Danny, would you mind introducing yourself to folks and letting them know how they might have known you on campus in the before times? <laughs> sure. Um, and also thank you for the opportunity to come and talk to you about copyright. Um I am Danny Collins. I'm supervisor in open learning for um, editing and uh, copyright. So copyright, though, the copyright department, I have an amazing team and they do the um, copyright for all open learning courses. And uh, many of the course packs that go through the print shop are automatically brought to us to review. So um, you might have seen me. well, I've mostly actually in the BCCOL building um, as an editor. And then about five years ago, I, I was hired <laughs> as the supervisor for copyright and editing. And I have to admit, copyright is daunting or it mm. feels daunting. So um, I, I get it. <laughs> but... <laughs> And you know what? I'm so lucky because I have such a great team of experts. So um, I'm referring to them every day, though. I think it feels really high stakes, right? Like in a way that other other choices we might make in the classroom, and particularly now that we've moved fully online, I mean, copyright involves like the law, right? And people don't particularly want to run afoul of the law. Um, I think the number one question that I get from faculty is, can I do X? Whether it's post a PDF or link to a YouTube video or upload a file from their computers that they're not sure of the origin of maybe. And my unexpert advice (laughs) is always that you should generally think of your Moodle space for a campus course, Mm -hmm. similar to the way you think of your classroom space on campus, which is to say, 
yes, you have copyright responsibilities, but also it's it's a protected environment in certain ways. So I'm willing to have you tell me that that's horrible advice, but I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how you approach these conversations when people have questions for you about whether what they can and cannot do in their Moodle shell. Well, I think those, I'm just so happy that they're asking the question, actually, <laughs> because it, copyright can, can, like you said, it's, if it's, feels so obstructionist and, you know, we're trying to create environments and, and learning, facilitate learning environments where, you know, we're being creative and innovative and, and a copyright just feels like something that is like obstructionist to that, you know, it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's doesn't allow us to do things, but actually if you kind of flip the coin a little bit, um, and this is how I've sort of wrapped my head around it because it, it certainly felt that way to me. Um, I, if you flip the coin, it's really a rights for users as well. So um, mm. you, and you know, a lot of us are, are going to be, you know, students and faculty are going to be making and creating lots of innovative um, files and art and, you know, anything, research, all of that kind of stuff. And it's about protecting that too. So, and then to go further from that, it's actually about respect. Mm. So if, if you are somebody that creates um, anything or, um, you know, does research or anything like that, um, and you are creating something original to you or some, or you're taking something that's already created and you are, making it further or more useful or however you want to look at it i mean that that's protecting copyrights protect you as well now you're back to your your advice to faculty that's excellent advice and even better than that probably is is if you're ever unsure come and talk to us but yes we have copyright exceptions in the copyright act so those are especially for education purposes and parity and, and so on. But for our purposes, of course, education. And, and we can help you uh, decipher what you need. And, but there's all sorts of exceptions that we can use to uh, clear what we call clearing the use of third-party materials. I like a bunch of things that you said there. Like I want to tease out a bunch <laughs> of different components because... You know, you mentioned this idea of respect and care and treating material that you find with respect and care, which I love, um, not just because that's a primary interest for me, but because I'm always thinking about what it is we mean as a scholarly community when we say that we operate in a culture of academic integrity, right? Because so often, culture of academic integrity really means here are a bunch of rules we expect students to follow, right? <laughs> that's that's often what we mean. Um, but I'm interested in the ways in which we model a community of academic integrity by taking things like copyright seriously in our classrooms. And I think, yeah, I think that's really important for students to see, right? That academic integrity isn't just about citing your sources. It's about a respectful handling of material. And we can model that in all kinds of ways that I think is really important. We've certainly seen an increase in, in ways that publishers have, have kind of monetized their materials for mm -hmm. sure, but especially now with, with COVID and, and so on. So, I mean, I, I understand the, 
cynicism there if if anyone did have cynicism about you know looking at it as as a function of caring but um it really is about caring and respecting the work of, of others so and we hope that that others would also be respectful and and ac- academia you know academic work is about respecting I would argue in a lot of ways, it is about respecting ideas and and respecting innovation and and modeling that for students. That's that's the whole foundation in my head anyway. (laughs) And it seems to me that I think sometimes people fear reaching out about copyright issues because they really don't want to hear that they can't use something, right? For good reason. Maybe they've already built lesson materials or it's a source that they just, they know they really need in their courses. Um, But it seems to me that more often the conversation isn't about yes or no. It's about, you know, how is attribution expected and what aspect of fair dealing are we leaning on to make use of it? And that kind of conversation. Am I am I right in that assumption? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the the first thing is, is, well, I should mention that just because you have attribution for something, that doesn't mean that you have the right to use it. So everybody, point, yes. yeah, everybody has or creators have copyrights no matter what. So that's the other thing, you know, trademarks and patents and all that kind of stuff can also be applied to um, academic materials. But um, you should also know that no matter if there is a trademark or a patent or any kind of um, um, attribution on something, somebody has created it and they have rights. So you have to really keep that in mind. But you want to make sure that you are, you know, giving credit where credit is due. You're giving credit to the right person. And you're right. More times, you know, nine times out of ten, it's usually a a matter of how. And if we can't get, if somebody is absolutely adamant that they do not want us to use their work, most people are thrilled, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) And they're, they, they love it. And they're, you know, really thankful that we are asking for permission and some people yes they want us to license the material um for sure that's understandable that's how they make their living um but there's always a way that we can use the material or we can find a suitable alter alternative okay that's exactly what i i think faculty need to hear so if someone is wondering if they're doing things properly, mm-hmm. is the best way to just start with an email to you folks to just open up a conversation? Or is there a process that they should follow that probably is they don't know about? <laughs> well, normally, okay, so there's a few things there. Normally, um, right now, you know, there's probably a lot of faculty that want to use things from textbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, whatever you're using, whether it's from textbooks or websites, you always want to make sure that you've documented what you're using so that, um, you know, you, you've when you're credit, giving credit where credit is due, like we talked about before, but, but also you always want to make sure that you've got that documented. So if you do have 
permission or you do have somebody coming down the road and and believe me publishers and rights holders they and you know all sorts of they've got middlemen bots <laughs> on the internet mm-hmm. and they are searching for stuff and they find it and they send faculty all sorts of nasty letters saying if you don't take this down or you already owe us $300 because we know you're using this in your course and and you know understandably that is quite distressing um, so you always want to make sure that you you have documented what you're using and how you're using it so if you have permission for instance you've got a written record of that permission Mm-hmm. If you've always have a written record, it's not enough. And you know, if somebody's giving you permission, they're more than likely willing to give you some, you know, shoot you off an email saying, yes, I give you permission to use this or so on. So you always want to make sure you have some sort of written record in your files. And that also helps us. If you're not sure, you can absolutely send us an email, but but we need to know what it is exactly that you're actually using (laughs) so Mm -hmm. but lots of times we run into the problem where even though I know it's it's kind of challenging sometimes you know especially if you're a creative person and you're a faculty member who's trying to put together a course pack or or you know even just a lesson for the next day or something and you're all excited and it's hard to kind of say slow down and and document oh yeah I got this from this and I got this from that and lots of times what happens is we faculty come to us because they're not sure and thank goodness they are coming to us but and lots of times we can find the material but it takes a really long time to do refresh searches and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff Mm -hmm. and lots of times what faculty do is they they say oh well I just did a google search so just type in you know uh bears in in google and you'll see where it is <laughs> no <laughs> doesn't right. work that way so we need a direct url if you're getting something from online or if you are you know uh getting something from a textbook we often need to know what textbook what the page numbers or at least the chapters are but you know going back to what you can use we have the on the um, intellectual property website, we've got all sorts of information about our fair dealing policy, uh, copyright exceptions that we can use from the Copyright Act. We've got uh, frequently asked questions, which I'm told is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's so many things that you can use. So don't let the copyright scare you. (laughs) There's so many things that you can use. And we are all, you know, well, my team is (laughs) really, really amazing at at helping uh, find, you know, ways to use the materials and or find alternatives. Yeah, that's fantastic. I will link to that resource in the show notes so people know where to start the conversation. Um, I'm going to ask you a really basic question. Sure. You may laugh. Go for but it. It's a question we hear a lot. And I'm, uh, again, not 100% sure I give people the right answer. So <laughs> I'll ask you on the air. Um, is there a difference when it comes to copyright between taking something and using it in your course materials or uploading it directly to your Moodle shell versus just posting a link to that material to where students can find it themselves? 
Yes. So there, there is a big difference there. Um, one of them is when you're linking to something in your Moodle shell, you are sending the student to their platform. So that is totally okay. That's always okay. Um, when you are actually uh, uploading or downloading or whatever the material and you're posting it directly into Moodle and you're linking it to, to on our platform in Moodle, mm -hmm. you're, what you're doing is you're actually making a copy of it and you're, what they say, redistributing the material. Okay. So we're, we're lucky in a way because with the... Um, with Moodle, we can actually look at Moodle as sort of like a virtual classroom environment. And because it is password protected, so many things that you would use in the classroom um, would be okay to use in Moodle. So I don't want that to scare people. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but that said, um, it's always much safer, I guess, if you will, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. to link to materials on their, send students to the original platform. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a few problems with that, though, that we'd run into sometimes. Um, and one is that sometimes links are unstable. So the creator, um, you know, has taken it down or the, the whole site has gone down. So if something is like really important to your to your class like an assessment or something if you've got a quiz that <laughs> you're sending students to a link that's gone down well that's going to yeah, shut that's you right bad. down yeah yeah <laughs> that's not going to work so um just keep that in mind and and the other thing is you know if you are sending students um to let's say youtube to watch a mm. video um a lot of people don't think about this but you're also sending students to um, all the comments that are underneath. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you're you're sending students to websites that have you know questionable advertisements, or mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to kind of think about that as well. So I'm I'm kind of sounding like I'm I'm saying no to links, but but I'm just asking faculty to consider those things. Um, and lots of times, like I said, we are able to post the material in Moodle. So, um, so if you are at all concerned about what else students are going to see in addition to the material, or uh, if you're worried about unstable links, then you know, give us a call and, and we'll help you figure out a way to post it. Um, but you want to make sure that, you know, if, for instance, you're, you've got a PDF of a chapter of a book, that's fine. So, you know, that falls under our fair dealing policy. Mm -hmm. um, journal articles, if you've got a, a journal article that you want to post, that's generally all, all right, too. So there's lots of things that we can do. <laughs> No, that's good to know. I have a question that maybe is very specific, but I'm realizing I don't actually okay. know. And that is, so with Kaltura, one of the functionalities mm -hmm. that Kaltura has that is nice is you can basically add a YouTube video to your Kaltura account. And it's mm -hmm. intended as a way to circumvent exactly what you're describing, where, you know, you send students to watch a YouTube video and then they end up in the comment section. And that's not always a healthy place to be. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm wondering what the implications are for copyright there, because you're no longer relinking. You're you're 
putting it on our platform. So is that something that folks should have a chat with you guys about before they decide to do? Yes, definitely. Okay. So, um, yeah, like I said, nine times out of 10, it's, it's likely going to be okay because it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, still behind a copyright, uh, sorry, password protected um, environment. Right. So it's still likely going to be all right to do that. But, but lots of times there's, there are exceptions to that. So it's probably good to give us a call. The other thing too is, is uh, transcripts. So we, I, I was listening to your podcast with Carol and Carolyn last week oh, and, yeah. and I was thinking about, you know, accessibility and, and, you know, all these great things that we're talking about with, you know, providing post captioning and transcripts and, and all that kind of stuff. But in fact, with, with copyright, we have to be careful with, with creating transcripts because mm-hmm. that is actually considered in lots of cases to be making a copy or, or to, you know, making a copy of some aspect of the video, which is right. really strange to wrap your head around, but, but it is mm-hmm. sort of like making or adapting a copy. So it's normally, it's usually okay, but we just have to be careful with that. So it's probably best to run those by us if you can, but yeah. That's really good. That's really good to know. And it's interesting to think about how, you know, you might be doing something because you're trying to be accessible. So you make a, a transcript of a third party video without really thinking about the fact that that's not yours to transcribe in the first place necessarily. So I think it's just really helpful for faculty to know that there is guidance available. I think that we forget (laughs) that there's people on campus who know what they're talking about with this stuff and where we can go to just, you know, run something past people who know and, and make sure we're not doing the wrong thing, ironically enough, in the quest to do the right thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think that probably sums up where most faculty are they're they're trying to do the right thing by their students and so you know the last thing and that includes being creative and innovative and and encouraging Mm -hmm. students to do the same so the last thing we want to do is discourage that right so there's always a way that we can pull it off so it may not be the exact material that we want or and it may have a license but you know we we find ways to do that and and if it's you know, there's, there, well, there is some funding sometimes for that. And, and mm-hmm. we've got so much, like I said, my team has so much expertise mm-hmm. and experience. They know where to find things. It's, it's, it just blows me away. It's like magic. <laughs> They're so good. And, you know, uh, Patrice and Mark have, um, have library experience and, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've been, working pretty closely with the library, uh, a little more closely anyway with the library. So they're great resources as well. And, you know, Rochelle is, some of the uh, faculty members might know Rochelle because she reviews many of the, most of the course packs. So, and she's just amazing. So yeah, where there's definitely support available. <laughs> and we of course we have the website. So um, all of those, you know, if, if you're looking at that, you've probably heard the fair dealing policy quite a bit. Um, mm. 
there's details about that and, and when you should, you know, get permissions and, and when you can use fair dealing, when you can use the exception. But like I said, when in doubt, just give us a call. I really like um, the way you position this conversation, Danny, because I know when I was a full-time teaching faculty, I often saw copyright as a thing that got in my way or cost my students money or, um, but it's useful to think about it instead in the kinds of terms we've been talking about today. One, that there is support to help you make the right choices for your classroom. Two, that the whole team is really committed to getting you the materials you need to use, that nobody is there to be obstructionist or to stand in the way. And <laughs> three, that it's ultimately about this larger conversation of respect and academic integrity and what we model for our students should be what we want them to do in their own academic practice. That's right. And, you know, you, you just sort of reminded me, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you reminded That's me okay. of... Uh, you know, we're talking about indigenizing the curriculum as well. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, that I think is, is really where I sort of started with thinking about respect mm -hmm. and, and the care of materials is, is when I was thinking about indigenizing the curriculum and, and some of the articles that I read around that. And, you know, I don't think that it hurts anybody if we are reaching out and asking for permission. So it's, or, you know, I think that that is really just respectful for everybody. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, but I think that, you know, traditional knowledge, it, it needs to be re respected that way. And I think mm -hmm. it, by extension, everybody's creating creations need to be respected that way. So, um, and modeled for students, you know, everything's so available and so fast paced and you can almost not even catch up mm -hmm. to what's happening with technology. But, but I think that, you know, when you look at that and you, you look at the materials with, you know, the idea of care and respect, I think that that's giving us something that we actually really, really need. The faster pace we get with this technology growth and all of that, then I think the the more we need to have those conversations about making assumptions about materials and how the creators want them to be used and all of that kind of stuff. So it sounds daunting, but I think it's so important to have those conversations. I think it's worth thinking about the kind of culture in which you want your own work to be treated, Absolutely. right? And yeah. that's something we talk about with faculty all the time. We're really careful sometimes uh, to to some faculty frustratingly careful about, you know, who gets access to your course. You know, we'll sometimes get an email saying, can you just make me a teacher on this course so I can pull some of these materials? They said it's fine. And it's like, I, I'm not, I believe you that they said it's fine, but I need them to tell me that it's fine because that's right. I respect that person's materials and I respect your materials. And I want, I want everybody to understand that this is part of a larger conversation that we're having together, not something that we impose on each other. And I think right. if we think about how we want our own teaching materials to be treated, that helps us to recognize the value of having the larger conversation about copyright and not thinking of it as an impediment to the work we want to do. Um, Danny, we're getting kind of to the end of our chat today. And I wonder if there's anything we haven't talked about that you would like to raise or anything that we Anything that you just wish faculty knew about the copyright process or what your team does? It's sort of like a, 
whatever you want <laughs> section of the chat. <laughs> well, I, I think that, uh, I think we just need to um, focus faculty on, you know, like I said, the respect and care for for other people's materials but also um you know if we bring it back around to the copyright act where where you know that's where our our exceptions are that we use for education mm-hmm. purposes and and you know if we look at the fair dealing policy that we have which is actually a guidance supplied by universities canada so it's actually mm-hmm. not based on on the copyright act per se um, so we, you know, we have, everybody talks about this 10%, you can use 10% out of fair dealing, um, and that kind of thing. But that 10% is actually just a, a bright line that we use. Oh, um, okay. So there's not, that's not like a, a set in stone in the Copyright Act. <laughs> oh, so okay. really, the fair dealing policy that we have, like I said, it's been sort of a guidance from Universities Canada. So a lot of us are using the same um, variation of those same guidelines mm-hmm. um, and policies around using third party materials. But really, there's actually six factor analysis. And, and this kind of re- relates to this care idea. Because what this is, is, is when we look at fair dealing, we're, we're saying, okay, well, we think, you know, 10, roughly 10% is a, a small enough excerpt that it would be considered fair, right? So we're not, right. we're not recopying the entire, the work in its entirety, um, and we're not distributing it in its entirety. Same thing with an article from a periodical or newspaper. So one article out of an entire newspaper is is deemed fair. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm using my quotations. You can't see me, but I'm using my little <laughs> quotations. <laughs> um, and, and then, you know, the same thing, if, if you've got like an entry from an encyclopedia, uh, annotated, annotated bibliography or dictionary, like a reference work of some sort, mm-hmm. um, this is important for if you're using images, there's um, artistic works that, contain other artistic works if you're just using one image from that then you know that's considered fair but but there's other factors as well as you know you're you're really thinking about are if this is the creator's way of life um Mm. this is their income am i am i actually circumventing that income so Mm -hmm. that's another way of looking at it so is it fair for me to go and make a copy of this person's work and kind of circumvent that the payment or licensing so that i can use it but they're not getting paid at all so if there's other works that are available that we can use then that's not really fair there's my quotations again (laughs) right 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 so so you're really thinking about it in terms of somebody's livelihood and Mm. there's also moral rights so if you're taking something you know a picture that somebody's put on on unsplash and they've even you know put a Creative Commons license on it, and and all you need to do is slap a attribution on that, and you think that you've called it a day. They still have moral rights as well. So if you're using it for nefarious purposes, mm. um, and you can 
you know, you can kind of fill that in however you want. <laughs> but, but if you're using it to say that, you know, you know, to make racist comments or whatever, you know, if you're doing something like that, then then that person has the right to not let you use it mm. and and take it down or whatever. So, or and that's the best case, case scenario. So, um, even with these cop, uh, Creative Commons licenses, which um, you need to make sure that you have the attribution. In many cases, um, that that's all they need. Right. You want you want to make sure that they, you know, you're you're also using it in good uh, <laughs> in good faith as yeah. well. Um, and the only other thing I have to say is uh, public domain works. Um, mm. There's lots of public domain works that we haven't really talked about that you can use, and you don't actually need an attribution for public domain works. And that includes public domain works that are older, mm. you know, because they've they've actually gone past their copyright date. So um, there's lots of things, and we can, like I said, we can help you find those, but you don't need to, you can use those however you need to however you want to you don't actually need a, an attribution for those but um, I, I encourage faculty and, and students to actually do provide some sort of attribution for those just because that's modeling that care and respect my first experience of using OER before I even knew that OER was a thing was when I was teaching a British literature survey course and I looked at the price of the Norton anthology and I was like, but all this stuff is by dead people. I'm not going to make my students pay for that. And so I spent the summer putting together a basically a PDF of Gutenberg texts of the things I wanted to teach in the class. Oh, yeah. And uh, I didn't even know that there was like a movement of people doing this. I was just, it just seemed like a reasonable thing to spend my time doing. And um, it was such an interesting experience with students because um, everyone had the book. Danny, which I had never experienced oh, before as an English prof. Everyone had the book. <laughs> it was <laughs> wild. <laughs> so I think when we when we think about ways to reduce costs for students, but still fulfill our responsibilities under copyright, public domain work is amazing. Absolutely. And you know, we are really we're really mindful of, of the fact that that those licensing costs and and um, you know, if we're using materials like textbooks and stuff, that that cost absolutely trickles down directly to students. So we are mm -hmm. mindful of that. But, you know, there's there's also the other side of that, which is I really like. Like I have some art history books that I had when mm. I was in college that I, you know, hundreds of dollars. Yeah. But I, I love it. I value it to this day. So there's there's something to be said for that. But but oh, yeah, for sure. It's they are so expensive and getting more expensive every day. So, oh my goodness, you're reminding me of how I leveraged my art history textbook because I was the only <laughs> one of my group of friends. My parents used to help me pay for textbooks, that was like the thing. And so, I was the only one who always had all the books. And yeah. <laughs> I took this art history class on Wednesday nights from 6 30 to 8 30. And my friend John didn't buy the textbook, but what he did was he stopped at McDonald's on the way to class. <laughs> And he used to buy like a bag of dollar burgers. That's how old I am. Um, a bag of dollar burgers to class. And we would share my textbook and we would share the bag of dollar burgers. <laughs> See? No, what would you have done? <laughs> that's how you leverage course materials, right? That's, that's what that you do. That is awesome. Uh, 
Oh, thanks so much for this chat, Danny. I think it's really valuable to just demystify some of this conversation and and open the channels of communication to campus faculty about these issues because I I I don't think there's any ever any malice around not addressing copyright. I think it's a combination of being maybe fearful of the process in terms of what it's going to mean for your course development and just not knowing. So I'm going to point people to the resources that you've mentioned. And also just, I think it's just nice for everybody to know that you're an extremely friendly person who is very, very helpful. (laughs) Well, and you think I'm friendly. You should see my team. (laughs) And they're actually much more articulate than, than I am about all this stuff. They know their stuff backwards or forwards. So yeah, hopefully we can get more of a discourse happening on the campus side, especially as we look towards, you know, a future that might involve quite a lot of hybrid instruction. I think this whole putting things on Moodle is not a trend that's going to pass. I think it's to stay, right? I feel like that as well. <laughs> Thanks Definitely. so much for your time, Danny. You bet. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye. So that is it for episode 20 of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray, and in both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. Of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip, maybe a tiny reading tip? A tiny critical exercise tip. I'm really struck by some of the language in the vital source letter we got this week. I'm struck by the language of equitable access. That's a term that is used in education, as many of you probably know, but it's a term that's used to describe trying to break down the digital divide between and among students. It's about openness in education and about resourcing students more effectively. It's not usually about charging them $200 a semester for their course materials. This got me thinking about how often we invite students into the discourse of our disciplines. So I'm asking this week, as I flex my own close reading muscles, is there something that you can ask students to do that will engage them in the discourse and the vocabulary of your discipline in a more critical way? Are there word choices in their readings that they could critique and ask questions about? Are there ways that your discipline uses language that you have questions about that you could pose to your students? I, for example, still kind of have to look up constructivism every time somebody says it to me. And I'm really supposed to know what that means. Sometimes I think about the way jargon and specific language invites us into a discipline to be part of a community, but lately I'm thinking about how jargon and discipline-specific language keeps other people out. And when I look at something like the equitable access language with vital source, I'm definitely thinking about the way language can be used to circumvent really good questions. So That's my tiny teaching tip for this week. Let's get jargony together. (laughs) And until next time, I am powered by frustration and rage, but still always happy to talk to you. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.